I just got back uh, from a family vacation in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. And while we were in the Smoky Mountains, uh, we decided to take a trip to Dollywood. I don't know if you've ever been to Dollywood. I don't know if you even know what Dollywood is. But Dollywood is Dolly Parton's theme park. Uh, And it's a real theme park. There's rides, there's shows, there's turkey legs the size of your face. I mean, it is is a legitimate theme park. And and so we went as a family, and, uh, and it was an experience. Have any of you been, anyone been to Dollywood? One person, and then maybe some people watching the video. Oh, a couple of people. All right, so it's it's an experience, right? And one of the things that stood out to me that that kind of took me by surprise was uh, as we were uh, going on this one roller coaster, and it was probably the best roller coaster there. It's called the Wild Eagle. Uh, as we were stepping into the line to go on the Wild Eagle, there's a huge scripture verse on the wall. And it's, it's Isaiah 40, 31, which says, But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. Y'all, that roller coaster was based on a scripture verse. I've never seen that in my life. And, uh, you know, it made me think, like, even theme parks in the South are Christians. And so it was like this crazy experience. And then after we did that, I kept looking around and noticing there were all kinds of, like, Christianese things in this theme park. There was, a, there was an old church that you could walk through. Uh, and, and then on Sunday, they actually have church service there. So you can go to the theme park. And if you're there on a Sunday, you go to church while you're at the theme park. Um, and so it was like this very kind of, I just, I, it, was, it was crazy to me. And as I was walking around and I was noticing all these things, it got me thinking, what does a person who's not a Christian think as they're experiencing Dollywood? And are they even picking up on all the things that I was seeing there? And then I started thinking about us, and I started wondering the same thing. What do people who aren't Christians think when they experience us? And I don't just mean us individually, but I mean us corporately as Summit Church. What do they experience? What do they think? I hope that they see and they hear about and they experience grace because that's, what, that's our job. That's what we've been called to. The church is the way God has chosen to show the world grace. In Ephesians 3.10, it says, God's intention was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. And this word manifold uh, is, is a word that means multifaceted. It's a word that means um, multidimensional, multicolored. It's the same word that's used to describe Joseph's technicolor dream coat in Genesis. It's, it's this idea that the church is meant to show this kind of profound and all-encompassing and, 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 and multicolored wisdom of God. Now, this is, this is so important for us to understand because we live in a time when it's real popular to say, hey, I'm I'm cool with Jesus. Jesus is my homeboy. Like I I like Jesus. I like Jesus' teaching, but I really want to have nothing to do with the church. But Paul in Ephesians 3.10 says, no, you're going to miss it if that's how you think because in fact, it's the church. It's the church that's going to make known to the world the grace of God. Now, In saying that, I want to address um, the fact that there are people that have been really hurt by the church, Um, that the church can be a hard place for some people. 
And, um, and, and I know it can be even traumatic sometimes stepping into a church. My wife, uh, Kelly, is a pastor's kid, and so there's all kind of baggage that comes with that uh, for her. And, and when I told her that I think I was supposed to be a pastor, that was hard for us. And, and, and it was hard to, to kind of step into this role here at Summit because the church can be a hard place, especially if you've had some painful experiences. And so maybe... Maybe for someone here, this is your first time back at church. And maybe it was really hard and it took a lot of courage to step in here. And I want you to, first of all, hear me say, I'm glad you're here. And as I talk about our need to be Christians in the context of the church, I'm not, my intention is not to pressure you. My intention is not to invalidate your relationship with Jesus for the time that you walked away from the church. But I do want to tell you that there is something about the grace of God that cannot be shown to the world through you individually. There's a type of grace that can only be shown through the church. And so maybe the reason you are here today is for you to see what the church was supposed to be and that it was supposed to be something so different than what you've experienced. So the church. The church is the way God chooses to show the world grace. How do you think we're doing? How are we doing at showing the world grace through our community, through our church? Now, there are lots of different ways that we could address this. There are a lot of different criteria we could look at. But I think here in the passage that we're going to be looking at today, as we've been going through Ephesians, um, we're, we're now at this place in Ephesians 3. And, and at the beginning of Ephesians th- 3, Paul begins to make a statement, and then it's almost like he interrupts himself. And then he decides, like, oh, wait a second, I got to say this. And, and it's kind of things that he's already been saying, but he wants to say it again. And I think as, as we read this and study this together today, we're going to see in, in, in Ephesians 3 that there are really three particular ways that the church displays grace to the world. The church displays grace to the world through its diversity, through whom it empowers to lead, and through its perseverance in suffering. So that's what I want us to look at together. And so we're going to read the passage. It's Ephesians 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. You can read along uh, in your bulletin. It says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, Now surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations and it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God 
should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is God's word. I am... I've become a pretty big fan of the musical Hamilton. And if you don't know uh, what that is, it's a hip hop rap musical based on the life of Alexander Hamilton, one of our founding fathers, um, also our first treasury secretary and the man whose face appears on the $10 bill. bill. Um, and, And I'm a huge fan. I've listened to the whole soundtrack a crazy number of times. I've read the making of book. Uh, about the musical, and I'm currently now listening to the audio book of the autobiography, or the, not the auto, the biography of Alexander Hamilton, which is 700 pages uh, in which the musical is based on. So, I, so I'm a pretty big fan. Uh, and this 4th of July, uh, Lee Greenwood, after many years at the top for me, was replaced with the Hamilton soundtrack on repeat. In fact, we were in the car several hours, maybe 20 hours over the last two weeks, and uh, my kids now know all the words to all the songs. Uh, Prince sings along, who's one, um, and I'm pretty sure that my baby boy that's going to be coming in a couple months is going to come out snapping, because uh, there's a lot of snapping in the, in the soundtrack. And, uh, and so I'm a huge fan of it. And, and one of the reasons, and one of the things that I think is most profound and beautiful about this telling of our country's beginning is that it's told through a diverse cast. Our founding fathers are no longer a bunch of white guys, but a a group of of men and women of all different ethnicities and races. And and I can imagine, like I haven't seen it because it costs like $2,000 now to go see it because everyone wants to see it, but, but I imagine if you're there and you're watching it, you're just blown away by what you're seeing. Because in fact, I think what you're seeing is what a nation truly under God would look like. And so you've got this, this, this musical Hamilton that, that puts this beautiful picture of diversity. Well, Paul paints a very similar picture here in Ephesians 3. Now, we maybe take for granted that the church is open to all people, no matter your race, no matter where you're from, no matter your background. Uh, and so we, we all kind of accept that. In theory, it's very easy for us to say that. Now, in practice, I think we have a, a long way to go. But it's not a shocking thing to say. It's not a shocking thing to say that the church is open to anyone. The church is open to all people. But if you and I were to put ourselves in the position of the original recipients of this letter, we would discover that Paul's words here would have actually caused quite an emotional response. In fact, uh, the predestination that's talked about in the first chapter and the wives submit to your husband that's talked about in chapter five are not even close to the provocative edge that chapter three would have been for the original hearers. This would have been the part of the letter that when it was read out loud, people would have been like, whoa, wait, what did he say? Like it, it, would, have, it would have been the shocking thing that was being said. Paul writes here in verse 6, he says, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. There would have been an emotional, visceral response when that was read from everyone. There would have been a response from both the Jews and the Gentiles. 
The Jews would have objected that God would allow unclean people, people who had not kept the Mosaic law, the, the, the people who had, who had lived in their eyes a very uh, dirty or sinful or immoral life. And the Gentiles would have objected because it would mean they would have to enter into a relationship with a group of arrogant and, and pretty universally hated people, the Jews. Now, Paul must have known how controversial his words were, and he must have known the objections that would have come. And like a good pastor, he wasn't going to wait uh, until Monday morning when he got all the angry emails. He, he was going to actually try to choose his words very carefully to make his point. And in this passage, if, if you heard, it's the same way in the Greek. He uses the word together three times. And he does that in order to create a very special emphasis about it. In those days, if, if you wanted to emphasize something, you doubled it. You said it twice. And if you wanted to overemphasize something, you'd say it three times. This is why in, a, in a Isaiah 6, 3, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What that means is that his holiness is even beyond the holiness that we could comprehend. And so Paul here says this word together three times. And what he's saying is what God is building the church, the kingdom that God is building is about people coming together in a togetherness that you can't even begin to imagine. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a beyond your comprehension kind of togetherness. So right here, Paul takes this word and he tries to shake the foundations of the traditional prejudices between the Jews and the Gentiles. They are heirs together. They are members together of one body. They are shares together of the promises in Christ Jesus. That's what it says in verse six. And this was God's plan. This has always been God's plan and it's still God's plan. When God first came to Abraham in Genesis and he said, hey, Abraham, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make your offspring my people. He didn't do that so that they would be special, so that they would, so that they would be the only ones that received the blessing of God. He said, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bless you and you're gonna be my people so that, I can, so that your family can be a blessing to the rest of the world. So that through you, I can begin to restore everything that has been broken and lost because of the fall. See, the church is, 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 a, is a movement in that direction. What God started with Abraham. And the church, not a Broadway musical, should be the best example of this. So are we willing to do the difficult work of pursuing diversity? Are we? N.T. Wright, the theologian, uh, when he's writing about this chapter, he wrote this. Listen to this. He says, we, and he's speaking of people in general. He says, we always tend to create societies and social structures in our own flat, boring image, monochrome, uniform, and one-dimensional. And at our worst, we marginalize or kill people or groups who don't fit our narrow band of acceptability. The church is to be by the very fact of its existence, an announcement to the world that there's a different way to be human. Is that what we are? Are we an announcement to the world that there is a different way to be human? Where's our divide? Where do we have dividing lines? Now, now maybe our divide isn't so much about Jews and Gentiles, so where is it? 
Now, you can't talk about this, especially in light of the events of this past week uh, with the shootings, with the police shootings of, of Alton Sterling and um, Phil Lando Castile. You can't, you can't begin to talk about this without knowing that that's kind of, that's in, that's in our minds, right? And, and I, as I've been praying through and thinking about this passage and what God's calling us to, I'm, I'm nervous because I think there's all kinds of uh, landmines in, 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 in having a conversation like this, but it's something we need to start talking about. And it's something that I hope will continue in our connect groups this week, that we begin to really talk about and try to figure out where are the dividing lines and, and how do we move towards reconciliation? We definitely have a racial divide in this country that didn't end with the civil rights movement. There's definitely something very wrong. So how are we moving towards bringing light and hope and health into something that's very broken? Wherever there's diversity, wherever there's a difference of upbringings or a difference of culture, it takes a lot of work. There are things that, that aren't just accepted. There's got to be a lot of patience and there's got to be a lot of grace and there's got to be a lot of listening and there's got to be a lot of yielding the floor, especially from those who have been privileged. I'm a white American male who's married to a beautiful woman. I am, I am the definition of privilege. So how, how do I begin to engage this? How do I begin to move towards this idea that when God said, I'm going to show the world grace through the church, and part of how I'm going to show the world grace through the church is through its diversity. How in the world do I move towards that? A friend um, who, uh, who goes to this church, um, he's adopted several uh, children from Haiti, and and we were at lunch uh, not too long ago, and he was I was asking him like how it, how it's going, um, because uh, he went from having two kids to six kids very quickly, and um, and he said you know one of the things that's been weird for him is that when he's out in public, there's so much more pressure for his adopted kids to behave than his biological kids. He says because I'm so aware that my adopted kids are being watched and scrutinized in a way that my other kids aren't. I don't know what that's like. Parenting is hard, and I can't imagine what it would be like to parent under those kind of conditions. The comedian Wanda Sykes says of her upbringing that dancing was never allowed in her car, uh, that her parents, her mom, would not let them dance in the car no matter how good the beat was, and that the mom was often stopping them saying, stop it. White people are looking at you. Uh, she says it just, it just, we had to be careful because of what people were thinking and looking at us. I don't know what that's like. A couple weeks ago in the singles Bible study that Kelly and I lead, uh, one of the girls who goes uh, to the Bible study, her name's Ashley, um, she just began talking a little bit about uh, how uh, she, she's half black and, and growing up, she always tried to minimize her blackness. And then she began to kind of say what that meant. And she said things that I would have never thought about. I would have never even known that that would have been going on for anyone. Those type of conversations should be happening in the church all the time. The church should be a place where we are so diverse that we have opportunities to hear from other people what their experience is like. 
We should be asking those questions and listening in such a way that it affects how we respond, that it affects the way we take in the news, that it affects how we respond when there's something that happens in our city or in our country or in our world. And it should affect the way that we think. It should affect what we say. It should affect what we retweet or what we put on Facebook. It should affect the way we talk to our coworkers. I don't want to have an opinion about uh, Philando or Alton and their death until I've mourned with those who mourn. I mean, the Bible is very clear. In Romans 12, it says we're to mourn with those who mourn. And it doesn't give any kind of qualifications of of who the person has to be. You have to know the person. You have to be like the person. They have to be the same race as you. They have to be a Christian. No, it just says our job as Christians is to mourn with those who mourn. So I don't want to have an opinion until I've mourned with those who mourn. And then I also don't want to have an opinion until I've sat down and talked with Ashley or other friends and said, okay, what do these deaths mean to you? Wherever there is diversity, it takes work. It takes a lot of work and a lot of listening and sometimes repenting. That's what we've been called to. That's the way the world sees grace through the church. Um, I, uh, I often think what people who aren't Christians what they, what they think when they look at us. Like, what do they see? Do they see that kind of diversity? Do they see a different way to be human? Do they see us working really hard to try to understand the other? Is our church a place where not only is everyone welcomed, but everyone wanted? I've mentioned uh, before my friend who, who comes to Summit pretty often uh, who's transgender. And, um, and he, uh, he loves this place. And he didn't grow up in a church. And his family, when he was 18, um, gave him permission and, and helped pay for, uh, for his surgery and his transition. And, um, but he found Summit. And, and he loves to come here. And he doesn't know that he can believe that Jesus is who he says he is. But he likes to come here and he likes to be around God's people. And he likes to wrestle in this place with that question to wrestle with the question, is Jesus who he says he is? And if he is, what does this mean for my life? Now more than ever in our city, we need to be people that are pursuing people who have often not felt welcome in church. But I don't think our job is just to welcome them. Our job is to want them because God wants them. Because through the gospel, we're told that those who are on the outside become heirs with us together, become members together of one body, become sharers together in the promises that are in Christ Jesus. How are we doing as a church with that? So that's the first question we have to wrestle with and ask ourselves. The next one is how have we empower, who have we empowered to lead in our church? And how does that show the world grace? When Paul writes the word mystery, he's not meaning a secret that's being withheld. Rather, he's talking about the plan of God that God had to reveal because you and I would never discover it. We would never come up with it on our own because it's so counterintuitive, it defies our reasoning. And when Paul talks about mystery, he links it with the word grace. He he uses the word grace three times in the passage in the Greek. And then he he also links it with the word gospel. 
Because you see, the gospel of grace, our salvation by grace, is the great mystery. It's the counterintuitive plan of God that we would never have thought up. We would never have reasoned our way to. The Ten Commandments are never called a mystery in the Bible. Why? Because we could have come up with them. Right? If you think about it, like, everyone could come up with the fact that it is better if I don't kill someone. It is better if I don't commit adultery. It's better if I don't steal. Like, we, we know that, that, that that's a better way to live. The golden rule is never called a great mystery. Do unto others as you shall have them do unto you. And the reason is, even though Jesus did say it, he said it in the Sermon on the Mount, every single religion in the world has some form of the golden rule. It is not exclusively a Christian thought. But the gospel of grace is. See, the gospel is not that you live a good life, you obey the Ten Commandments, you live by the golden rule and, and then God will bless you and he'll hear your prayers and, and one day he'll take you to heaven. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that the son of God came to earth and lived the life that you and I were designed to live, that we were created to live, that we haven't lived and that he died the death that we deserve for our disobedience in our place. The gospel says that we can be justified before a holy God, a holy, holy, holy God, a, a holiness beyond our comprehension so that we can be seen as righteous in his eyes. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin so that through Jesus, through believing in him, you and I might become the righteousness of God. And although as followers of Christ, you and I are being transformed more into more and to what God had in mind when he thought us up, we still got a long way to go. I was having coffee with a guy this week who, who told me, he said, hey, you know what? I think you're a lot less arrogant than you were three years ago when you started here. Um, and that was the best thing I heard all week. I was so excited. I was like, that's great. I hope that's the case. I, I want to be getting better. But let's be honest, I'm kind of proud of that compliment, right? Like, I feel really good about it. I wanted to share it with y'all. So, um, we're still sinful and we're not perfect, but what the gospel of grace tells us is that we can be both a sinner and loved by a holy God, and that can happen at the same time. That's crazy. That's counterintuitive, and it's a mystery. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that while we keep sinning, we are still loved because Christ died for us. 1 John, 1, or 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2 says, don't sin, but if you do sin, Know that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So what does that have to do with who's empowered to lead? Well, Paul says in verse 8, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Now, I, I don't know how you can be the less of the least. Um, uh, Paul is being hyperbolic there, but he's not just being that. And we know that uh, in a, le a letter written probably much later than this one, in a letter that Paul wrote to a young pastor, Timothy, as, as Paul knows that his time on earth is coming to an end, he says in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. See, Paul does not leave the work of God's grace in the past, but he brings it right into his present. Even on his deathbed, he is proclaiming his need for grace, and that's it. That's why he can lead. The church is the way God has chosen the world to show the world grace, and one of the ways that happens is through 
the people who lead who are humble and repentant. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to have read through the Bible in a year. You don't have to know everything the Bible says. You can be the chief of sinners and be empowered to lead in the church. Some of you have been waiting to take a step into some form of leadership, maybe starting a connect group, maybe uh, uh, being a leader in base camp or in student ministries. Maybe you've been waiting to, to kind of take a step in, in starting some kind of service project or a nonprofit, and you're waiting for that moment when you achieve some level of Christian excellence. Do you repent? Do you know how to admit your weakness? Do you know that you have been saved by grace? Do you know that it's all grace? That's it. If you know that, let's empower you to lead. See, when the church looks at those who are leading in the church, they should see all kinds of people leading who by worldly standards should not be leading. People who don't have what it takes. People who don't have the it factor. People who don't always get it right. People who maybe look weak and broken. See, when when we become followers of Christ, Every one of us is empowered into leadership. And lastly, our perseverance during suffering shows the world grace. Paul says in verse one, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he ends the section in verse 13 by saying, I ask you, therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Uh, A new tribe's missionary by the name of Martin Burnham uh, was killed not too long ago in the Philippines. He and his wife had been taken by a terrorist group and held captive for 376 days. Now, during their captivity, Martin was often um, required to kind of carry the terrorist supplies, uh, especially when when it was difficult, when they were kind of going through torrentious Terentious terrain. And, um, and his wife, uh, who has survived, uh, said that throughout that whole period, he never complained. In fact, he viewed uh, his servitude as a calling of God and an opportunity for the gospel. Uh, he, when they became really weak and malnourished, uh, some relief agencies were managed to get food packages to them. Uh, and Martin's wife said that uh, they would share it with their captors. And, uh, and at one point, uh, Martin was even able to repair a satellite phone that belonged to his captors. And she said, one night he said this to me. He said, the Bible says, serve the Lord with gladness. So let's go all the way. Let's serve him all the way with gladness. And they did. And this drove their captives crazy, or captors crazy. In fact, at night, the the captors would argue and fight over who would go and chain uh, Martin for the evening. Because every time when, when they would come in and chain him, he would thank them. What in the world? Why would he do that? Why would he submit to being a prisoner and a servant, especially to those who want to harm him? Well, Martin's wife said, It was because every night, Martin would get the opportunity to patiently explain the gospel to his Muslim captors. She said he was living for them. 
And he viewed his situation and his suffering as a calling of God to proclaim the mystery of the gospel of grace. The church is the way God has chosen to show grace to the world. And all of us can find ourselves in situations where it might be difficult to share. I've been thinking a lot today about um, uh, those of us who are in 33rd. And and I know you're in a situation where maybe you made choices that landed you there. Maybe, uh, Maybe it's not your fault that you're there. I don't know why you're there, but I do know that you are in a situation now where God can use you. This can, this can be a way in which you can serve God and proclaim the, the gospel of grace to those who are with you. I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're in a situation at work. Maybe you have a boss um, that, that's, that's not fair, that's overbearing. Maybe you find yourself uh, in a situation, and I'm not saying if you're in a bad situation that God isn't telling you to get out because I'm sure the, the Burnhams, had they had the opportunity, they would have gotten out. But wherever you are right now, what would it look like for you to go all the way? One more thing, um, and this is maybe a little bit more of a personal rabbit trail, but um, this, is, this is what I'll end with. Um, well, when the Pulse shoot, shooting happened um, a couple weeks ago, I was in Atlanta. And um, in fact, uh, I was uh, with my family at the Georgia Aquarium when I started getting the news. And I had been looking forward to going to the Georgia Aquarium for years because I wanted to see the whale sharks. Uh, if you don't, whale sharks are huge and magnificent. And in the Georgia Aquarium, they're there and you can get right up to them. And I mean, it was just a magnificent sight. And it was it was, it was such a weird juxtaposition to be hearing of such awful, horrendous evil and terror in our city while the, at the same time I'm taking in kind of the beauty and majesty of God's creation. And, um, and, and so it was a weird, it was a weird moment. Um, and it was a moment in which I just kept thinking, I just want to get back. I just want to get back to my city. I just want, I just want to be back with my people and my city. Um, and so the next day when we were driving back, I, I drove as fast as I could. I just wanted to get here. And I had found an app um, on my phone that I could get radio stations um, from here to listen to the whole way. Because I was sick of, I had watched the news stations uh, that evening and I was sick of hearing other people talk about our city. Like, I just wanted to hear us talk about our city. And so the whole drive home from Atlanta, I was listening to our local radio stations. Um, and so it was the day after the shooting and um, a man who was part of the LGBTQ community uh, was on the radio and he was talking. And he was actually a man that I've met a couple times and uh, is really the funniest man probably I've ever met, and, uh, and he was talking, and I was listening to what he was saying, and then he said he blamed uh, the shooting uh, on Christians, and when he said that, uh, it devastated me, and then it infuriated me, and I really wanted to call into the radio station and say, hey, Hey, wait, wait a second. You need to look at what my church um, is doing today. And, and this was the day that uh, so many of you came together and, and we were making care packages to, to send to the families of the victims that were in the hospital. Um, and we had had this goal of, of, of 100 care packages and we ended up making 700. And, um, and not only that, I was, I, as, as this guy was talking and as I was getting mad, I was thinking, and you, you know, we even, we had to go through the center, which is an LGBTQ organization in order to, to get these care packages to the victims. And I just, I just wanted him to know that. And then I started thinking about all the ways the church has hurt that community. 
And then I started thinking about all the ways in which we have not shown up when that community needed to experience grace. And I thought we should be thanked for making a few care packages. What I realized is that I want the church to look so good right now. But not just the church universal. I want our church to look good. I want our church to look good through this whole situation. And not only that, I don't just want us to look good. I want us to be celebrated for how we showed up. But what if we're not? What if we're not celebrated? What if, uh, what if the ways in which we've tried to help, what if the ways in which we've tried to love is met with rejection? What if sins of other churches or the past or things that even we've done, what if that, that keeps us at arm's length from really being helpful to those who are really hurting? Or what if our service is, is accepted, but it's accepted with suspicion, where our motives are questioned? What if we're blamed for the hateful and evil thoughts that drove a man to kill 49 people and injure 53 others? What do we do? And we keep serving. And we keep loving. And we keep praying. And we keep pursuing. And we don't worry about the rejection and we don't worry about the acceptance and we don't worry about the recognition because we know the plan. We know that the plan has always been from the very beginning. We know that God wants people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and orientation. We know that you and I, we know that we have never locked eyes with someone who doesn't matter to God. And nowhere is that more clear than at the communion table. When we come to the communion table, we see a God who wants us. We see a God who, even though we are so different from him, even though we constantly choose differently than what he wants for us, even though we want independence from him, even though we want nothing to do with him, even though, in fact, we want him dead, he still wants us. At the communion table, we see and we remember that he gave his life to get us. And that there are so many people in our city right now who don't know that. And the way in which God wants to make that known is through the church. So what can we do? I hope, as I've kind of brought up these three things, that this is something we continue to dialogue and wrestle with. And and like I said, in your connect group this week, begin to talk about it. Because the way our community experiences through the church is through us individually, through the relationships that we have outside these walls. And I'm really hopeful about what God can do through us. Let's pray. Father God, I I thank you um, that you have called us together uh, to be a display of your grace. And Father, there's so many places where we've fallen short. There's so many places where we, we haven't done the hard work of pursuing diversity. 
There have been so many places where we have, we've, we've stepped away from, from taking a bold step into leadership or, or we've kept others from stepping into leadership because, because we're worried we haven't got it all right when, when in fact we just have to admit our sin and we just have to see ourselves as being sinners saved by grace and that is where the power lies. And Father, there are times in which we haven't persevered where we've only done things for the sake of recognition. We haven't persevered knowing that ultimately your glory will be revealed. So Father, convict us where we need to be convict us and encourage us where we need to be encouraged. But Father, thank you that through all of this, we can rest in the truth of what Jesus has done for us. We can breathe in Jesus's grace so that we can share it with others. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen.